Hi and welcome to the Msingi Talks podcast, a podcast hosted by Msingi Trust. This podcast ventures deeper into issues of faith, advocacy, activism, and makes connections between these worlds. Psalms 89.14 states that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. And here we unpack how the church, as the body of Christ and institution, can faithfully embody justice and righteousness in both word and deed. Karibuni and let's do justice. Karibuni sana to this episode of Msingi Talks. My name is Carol Nanga, founder of Msingi Trust, which hosts the Msingi Talks podcast. Msingi, Msingi Trust is about connecting the worlds of faith, social justice, advocacy, and activism. I'm very excited to, to be hosting my friend uh, and a brother who is would say from another mother, but I think he's also from a Kenyan mother. <laughs> so Matlatsa, Mashua, um, husband to my friend Lusanda and my sister. Welcome to Singi Talks. Karibu sana. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's, it's really good. I, I, I must say I'm a fan of the podcast and so to have the privilege of joining uh, is a huge, huge, huge honor for me. Thank you so much. It is an honor to have you. And also I'm a huge fan of the work that you do. The, your podcast also, you have a podcast. You can tell us more about it. You and Lusanda host a podcast. You can tell us about that. But I'd like you to introduce yourself to the peeps. Who is Mr. Matlatsa? Well, I would I like to say I am a, I'm a, I'm a full-time husband and dad who dabbles in many other things. Um, so I'm married to the amazing Lusanda and I am a father to three amazing girls uh, aged six, five, and three. And uh, I derive incredible joy from being called Papa by those three people. Uh, and I, 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 I take it honestly, if I could, I would just, that's, that's the only thing I, I would do. But I do dabble in other things as well. I am I am currently studying. Uh, I'm doing my master's in international affairs at uh, King's College in London, as well as uh, I'm the regional director for the Ministry of Ravi Zacharias uh, in here in Africa, uh, which really is a, uh, in a is an evangelistic uh, ministry with a tagline that summarized uh, helping the thinker believe and the believer think and um and a thinker believe sorry <laughs> uh, i think i went too fast for my own good but i yeah but basically i i just really um love discussing you know the think that the the topics like you said of faith and social justice but in a in a broader sense it's it's when the christian story is is raised that uh, people with questions with reservations with objections and uh, and it's something that I, I love to uh, to talk about. And then uh, ultimately as well, I, I'm uh, the acting CEO of the Colisi Foundation, and my responsibilities there is it's really working in the NGO space, uh, doing anything from food security, um, addressing issues of gender-based violence. Uh, sporting initiative, education initiatives, but the whole idea of changing 
the narratives of inequality. Uh, I also love to facilitate conversations. I do mediation as well. And so facilitate conversations, especially where there's conflict and uh, people need to find one another in the corporate space, in the school space, in government space, uh, and uh, any, any really social space. I, I, I love to see and apply myself towards seeing um, people reconciled and communities reconciled towards one another as well. Wow, wow, a full plate, a full plate. But I, I think I, I remember uh, we did, I studied last year, we had a class with Lysander and uh, I remember the conversations that we were saying, especially around your girls and how she kept saying that you are the kids whisperer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they always, you know, your way around your daughters, and just really being this this phenomenon nowadays. How is it uh, being a girl dad, and what and add what brings you joy? Well, yeah. Wow, this is this is probably my favorite question to answer. So you have to you have to stop me. Um, I've got so much to say. So, <laughs> so, so one of my, I mean, so one of the best advices that I received when I was going to get married was you should always be a student of your wife. And, and so that's how I've approached, I guess, my, my marriage uh, is to know uh, and, and study and continuously be studying my, my, my companion. But then I took that advice and I extended it uh, to, to my daughters. And so it's an incredible joy for me to study them, to watch them, and to, to, to then know how to communicate myself and to help them to grow as well. Uh, also, it, it, uh, I had a really good example in growing up, but there were also things that I wished my, in my dad, that is, but also those things that I wished my dad would, would do that he didn't necessarily do. And I've always dreamt of doing those. So when I became a dad, it just became this full plate of how do I just take the best of what I've received, but also my longings. I love my girls. I listen to them. We spend time together. I, from the beginning, I um, I try to be a, a a real positive presence in in their lives. Uh, so so even when when before they, as the son would say, before they became really human beings in a sense that they were just babies and didn't know we were around I still remember when we brought Maisha back home for the very first time was our firstborn and and Lusanda was you know tired and she went to was breastfeeding and I just kept on the biggest fight we were having was I was trying to get her to express and, and get milk out so that I could feed the baby you know, because I, it was so important to me. Of course, I had to back off because Lusanda had some ideas about what that meant during that time. Uh, and so I had to back off, but I still remember that um, she always says, I've never left really the corner trying to be there. But I, I really enjoy my girls um, discovering who they are. Every day I discover who they are, they change. And my, my privilege is to, is to find out who God has made them to be and help them to be the best version of that wow um that's uh that's a privilege and i i also an honor to know because we have so many cases of absentee parents men and women and it's 
amazing to hear that there are parents who are positively and intentionally present. So you've, you've said that your first uh, daughter's name is Maisha. That's Swahili. Um, I would and my like, second is Amani. And your second is Amani. So there is definitely a Swahili-Kenyan <laughs> connection. Yes. yes. How are you connected to Swahili, the Swahili nation? Could you share with us? Yeah, so... I grew up thinking that I was from a tribe here or an ethnic group here in South Africa, the Venda people. Then uh, doing a little bit of digging, I found out that no, Venda is where they settled, but actually they came um, in terms of my family from my dad's side, actually you know, did a, a bit of a trek from, from Kenya down to the South. Uh, think about three or four generations. And so I was very intrigued by this and um, did a little bit of more research only to find that it was all too common to have Mashuas in, in, in Kenya, that it wasn't, uh, you know, that it wasn't difficult to find other Mashuas or so the story linked up. And so to find out that I've got blood from Kenya, uh, finally, I've always known I was East African. I think I've always felt that East African connection. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So, so it was a delight to just finally find that official connection. Uh, but then, when my daughters were born, we decided. I mean, you know, we 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 decided we we're going to name them in Swahili, at least the first two. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Um, and and maybe delving more into this conversation today, we wanna we want to talk more about apologetics, justice in African and Pan-Africanism and the conversation around Africa. And first, looking at the dynamics of Africa, xenophobia and all that, yet we are all one, you know, that we've, we've all had journeys because even in my Amkikuyu and I think we're either from Congo or from Cameroon, from like we can, our tribe our culture is traced from all that. And to see how xenophobia is such a lie, it is such a construct. Yeah. And then connecting that with um, identity of who is an African. Yeah. If I was to ask you who is an African, what would you say that is? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, one of my favorite authors that Lysander also loves, Emmanuel Katongole, um, speaks about there can be no justice without memory. And uh, just this idea that, uh, so, People, people are a product of their stories. And within those stories are encoded uh, memories. And within those memories lies the issue of identity, who they are. And I think that, you know, if you ask the question uh, about who's an African, is those who have... Uh, stories that have formed them and have formed, I think, all the history that have happened on this beautiful continent. That includes those who are not geographically part of this, but have 
uh, have been shaped by the stories of this continent. Uh, that includes people who don't live here, but who have, I think, positively shaped the stories of this continent. Um, it's a pity, I think, what you say about uh, xenophobia, that it's such a, it's such a false story uh, of treating one another with a certain level of violence based on false uh, ideas about who belongs where and who doesn't belong where and who deserves what and who doesn't deserve what. And uh, it is an absolute shame for me as a South African um, to, to say that uh, here in South Africa, we, we have been guilty from time and time again of being perpetrators of xenophobic violence against other African uh, people, our fellow African people. And it, it is, it is it, it, I think that there are many reasons, but part of it is this idea that we can redefine personhood and stratify it. And then based on where we place ourselves on that hierarchy of personhood, we can then treat those who are below as subhumans or with the particular violence that we have the right to uh, while uh, ourselves being recipients of the same type of violence from those that we perceive to be above that hierarchy, above us on that, on that hierarchy of personhood. And so South Africans uh, have done that with other African nations. Um, largely we, you know, even when I travel, I come to Kenya and, and I come back to South Africa and people say, so I heard that you were in Africa. Yes. You've been traveling yes. to Africa. You know, and yeah. How's Africa? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I said, but, but we, are, we are in Africa. We are Africans. And then they said, oh, but you went to Africa. You know, and, and, <laughs> the and so real it's like, one. that's right. But there's this idea, there's this idea that we, there's the hierarchy of personhood. And, and of course, that there are people who sit below us. Uh, on that, and we can treat them with a certain level of uh, violence, and and that's what we've done. And of course, there's there's there are many dimensions to this. Uh, there's you know the people who exploit this sort of ideological structure already uh, to to then put language to the pain and suffering, the political uh, connected pain and suffering that people face. You know, all these people are coming to take our jobs. All these people are, you know, uh, um, coming to finish our resources in this country, and so. But those, that's putting language to the suffering that people have because of a lack of, you know, jobs or whatever it may be, and then painting those who, like I said, were already put as below, uh, you know, my uh, place and uh, of humanity below me, and putting them their face as as as, as enemies. Uh, but it's a real shame. It is, it is an absolute shame, and it's a sin to God. And it's uh, something that really needs to change. Yeah, and uh, I want to ask, and I want to put that perspective into the other side of you, which is apologetics, and uh, the fact that you, you, you are in this field. And how did you come into this field, and how does the social political landscape of Africa? help or influence the apologetics? And for the people who do not know what apologetics is, 
could you please um, explain what that is? So uh, apologetics is uh, maybe to use a very popular scripture in Peter uh, 3.15, uh, always be prepared. But Peter, Peter, what, he, what he's doing there is he's writing to a group of Christians and he's telling them that this is how they should live. So they, they're experiencing some hardships, some persecution. And he says, look, your hope is in Jesus Christ. And therefore you should live lives that show uh, that are in accordance to that hope, that your hope is in Jesus Christ. Now, but when you live like that, people are going to ask questions because your your life is going to be different than those or to those that live their lives on a different type of hope or different hopes. And when they asked you uh, then to give a reason, right, for, 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 for the hope uh, that you have, uh, for the way that you live your life, then you've got to be prepared to give an answer uh, when they ask you. And so that word answer in that scripture in its, in its Greek is apologia. And so it has been translate, transliterated into the English uh, apologetics. Or, uh, and so it's, it's, it's giving an answer, being able to say something back when people are asking why, what is the reason uh, that you, you, you have for the hope that you have. Uh, and, and so to give a word back now, the, the, it's 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 much broader, I guess, also than that, because on on one end, it uh, it looks like um, when God has been framed unjustly, to be able to give a word back. That's what it is when God uh, has been framed unjustly, is anything that gives a word back that tries to to engage with that unjust framing of God. That's apologetics. The other side of it is to present a positive case um, for, for God, to make a positive case for God. In that sense, you're saying, look, the Christian story in its, all its application, the personal, the uh, social impact, it is desirable, it is plausible, uh, you know, and, and, and it's plausible, um, and so, so, so it, it lends itself into an invitation where you're inviting people to participate, or at least to taste and see that God is good. Mm. So, Anton, um, so what would you say Africa's question? And then what would be um, the answer? And then in our case, um, the African story I know we know that um, Christianity was here before coloni- colonization came, but the real tool that the tool of Christianity that came that accompanied. Oh, let me phrase this in a different way. We know that colonialism and Christianity came hand in hand. So when you're asked um, about apologetics and the social political connotations of that and how even some of the verses are really cannot be defended, you know, like Judges 19, and maybe there's a, there's a defense for that about, um, for me, I think my worst verse in the Bible is the chapter on Judges 19. There's a woman who's Cut, cut apart and her body parts are spread all over and maybe they 
like I really don't understand that kind of violence. So what what is apologetics answer to that or is there an answer is there a need for an answer? Yeah. So 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 yeah so so um that's a, that's a good question. So do you want me to, to, to talk about Judges 19 first or do you want me to talk about Africa as a whole? Because uh, you asked the questions of, of, of Africa. You can, you can do both. You can do Africa okay. and then Judges 19. Okay. So, so um, in, in, it's in Matthew where Jesus asked his disciples, who do, who do people say I am? And it's a very, very, very important question that I began to ask here um, in, in, in Africa, different African communities, whenever I traveled, who do people say Jesus is? And that question has been quite revealing because some people say Jesus is the colonial tool that was used to disrupt African development to position Africa as a uh, underdog in our own in our own place in history. Jesus is uh, the thing that was communicated to me in the language of English, uh, which is the tune uh, and the frequency of personhood, something I could never uh, 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 attain. Jesus is the the you know as uh, Professor Ramos puts it, I guess uh, when thinking about the colonialism project, you know first you you conquer people, then you 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 give them religion. Uh, not only you give them religion, but you dispossess them of their freehold interest in their land. Uh, as the saying goes, before you know when the Europeans arrived, we had the land. They had the Bible then. They taught us how to pray and we opened our eyes. They had the land, we had the Bible. Uh, it's a story of dispossession that uh, the, the face of that is, is the story of Christianity. Uh, that Jesus is um, the one who redefined unjustly or killed knowledge, African knowledge, indigenous knowledge systems, because it was partly some of those who represented him or did that. Uh, so to define unilaterally on behalf of those who are conquered, uh, what truth, what meaning, what experience, all of these things is. Um, and the list goes on where there are less than flattering but very painful stories that you hear in Africa about the, the, the unjust framing of who Christ is. And so in, in this case, when I look at these questions, I see that it's not, it's not the first time in history, and the Bible makes it clear, where people have used God's name to further their agenda. So if you think about the concept of power, where the human propensity to, to have power, to exercise power over others, sometimes can masquerade itself as religious legitimacy. And this is what's happened with Christianity in Africa and the stories of pain. It's not truly the person of Christ who's been uh, represented, but it's Christ who's been unjustly framed. So people abused his name. Uh, and, and so it's, 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 again, it's a, it's a, it's a response, but not in a sense, when I said give a word back, I don't mean that only in a legal sense where you give a word 
uh, back that says um, there is a vindication. There is a vindication about who God is, but there is also a lament about the brokenness in God's world that God also uh, uh, weeps over. That, in fact, that's a framing of justice is God seeing the brokenness in his world and getting intimately involved in driving history in the direction of fixing his broken world based on his character. Uh, because there's been a loss of something uh, that you see God applying himself to, to then to fix that. There's a loss of God's intendedness, God's shalom, God's nature, God's uh, intention, the way things God intended. And so God is on a mission to restore that. And often we come across contradictory accounts of what God did that he didn't actually do, but human beings did, uh, that God laments. Um, so, so there are many questions uh, that we ask. There's a how long question. You know, Habakkuk uh, asks this question in, in the opening of his book. He asks us how long. He's been praying for a long time. God, the rich are oppressing the poor. The, there's no justice that people have in the courts. And he's, he's asking, he said, God, but how long? And, and what God does is he, he gives him an answer and tells him that he's going to do something about it. But, but the problem with God's answer is that it seems even more unjust. It seems like it's going to bring more pain than, than it's going to solve. And so the book, instead of providing us with uh, answers and, and a neat apologetic where God outmaneuvers intellectually Habakkuk, you know, and eventually Habakkuk has nothing to say. No, in fact, it doesn't resolve like that. In fact, it, it, it God shows that he is doing something. He's going to do something and he's going to judge people, but there's a sense of this com- uncomfortable resolve that we're told look the process we don't it's very complex but at the end Habakkuk can say though the fig tree does not you know uh, blossom uh, yet I will praise God and so he arrives at a place where he feels satisfied by the presence of God by the actions of God even though he does not fully understand them Um, so I think there is a sense in which I'm comfortable in my own apologetic, uh, Carol, where things might not resolve, especially if the, it's questions that God asks uh, himself uh, and he's not necessarily interested in resolving all of them. Uh, the story of Judges. Uh, do you want to say something before I get to, to Judges uh, based on what I've said? Yeah, there's, there's a lot in there but um, I'm just wondering how um, the English goes now I'm thinking how how does sometimes the way in which God resolves things is not the way we expect them to but I'm also very it's refreshing to hear apologetics and maybe we'll cover this it's refreshing to hear an apologetics perspective that also includes justice and I think we need to to speak about this further because my experience with apologetics in Nairobi uh, and in the circles that I've been is that it it is devoid of justice and then uh, it's it's about being right it's uh, it's about not leaving the questions. 
it's about wanting to resolve on behalf of God. And for me, this is why apologetics is really a turn off for me because I feel like you really, really want to defend God or the people whom I've experienced. There's, there's like the need to, to fight for God who really doesn't need us to fight for, uh, for, for God. So, uh, yeah, so that's, that's what's going on in my mind as you speaking is, and like this will be another question is how did you make the transition or was was justice always a part of your apologetics yeah so it's it's it adds another question yeah look i i, I no i think i understand where some people come from because if you look at apologetics as a as an academic field a field of study uh, you'll see that primarily it sits in a philosophical field, and it's a it's a branch of natural theology, but that is very much linked to philosoph- making philosophical arguments. And uh, and I've been trained in that, uh, and so I, I understand it, and I know uh, people who teach it that way, but. The, the, the big thing is historically, as I began to think historically, in fact, what changed for me? Let me tell you what changed for me. I was speaking to a colleague of mine who was a first and who is usually a first responder to whenever there's been a, a bombing in a village, uh, say in, um, you know, let's leave the country, but it's a, it's a village has just been bombed, uh, attacked and people have been killed. He's a first responder to, to come in and, and, you know, give support to the community, pastoral support to the community. And he does then, uh, he had called me and said, look, I just presided over a mass, uh, mass a funeral. And so I, I said to him, what do you say? Because that part of apologetics is a theodicy, right? Yeah. And, and I'd been taught uh, many theodicies, but all of them, they say God is in control. God is in charge. He's powerful. And what do you do in that moment when people are asking that question, when, when, when there's so much pain at that moment? He said, well, look, you're burying people. There's still the, you know, the, 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 the smell of burning flesh. And, uh, and so you, you, there's, no, there's no time to, to really pull a, a sermon from the back of your pocket. And one of the things that I have found is that one of the greatest apologetic, he said, in that moment is to talk about is to talk about the suffering God, the one who is revealed in scripture as, as, as a God who suffers when, when his people suffer, the one who weeps, the one who uh, sometimes uh, also knows what it is to be, to be weak mm. and to lose, for instance, he knows what it is like, you know, to lose a son. When I speak to mothers and fathers who've lost sons, I speak about a God who knows the pain of losing a son. And as he began to speak, it was it was this apologetic that I'd never been taught before, yeah. uh, because it met the, the the requirements of what I've understood to be ap- ap- apologetics, which is the unjust and incorrect framing of God, because God reveals Himself in Scripture as those things. But secondly, there was an invitation to come to a God who was who understood people's pain uh, as well, better than the one who was very. 
you know, from a far off sitting and saying, well, you just have to believe me, I'm in charge, regardless of what you see and experience in your life. So that was a changing moment. And I, th- I would say that thinking in, uh, about the questions of Africa has changed me or saved me from that kind of apologetic, I think, um, that is that is more that is that is that has to do with understanding how God wants to give His own word back, rather than feeling like I need to defend Him. Oh, okay. Why? Uh, why do you maybe to contextualize this to our African story? Why? Why do you feel? The reason I always say this in every podcast is that the reason we we founded Msingi, I found God, actually God led me to start Msingi is to centralize the justice conversation in in in, in church, in our faith journey, in in our apologetics, in everything that we do. Why do you think it's so hard to centralize uh, the justice conversation? We'll get to, I think we'll get to judges as we get to judges. <laughs> but I, this conversation is adding so many other questions that I've always had about centralizing justice. And it's not, because um, a lot of times there's either the gospel and justice, and I don't understand where that dichotomy comes from. But why is this yeah. so difficult? Well, I think it's a product of prioritizing theology done in a particular part of the world, particularly in the West, that if you look at theologies that have developed in other parts, the, the dichotomy, the dualism doesn't really exist. In fact, it's, it's also a product of forgetting our own history as the church, uh, even in the West, it's a it's a very it's a very 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 uh, strange thing that if you look back into into history, uh, like we're going through a pandemic right now, and so I started looking into different pandemics in history and seeing how Christians have, re- have reacted during pandemics, and so you see people today who are more concerned in the church about keeping the church open. And, and I can understand there's different reasons for that. I don't want to get into, into that. But what I'm, what I'm saying is this is what has been said about the church, mostly. The church is interested in keeping their doors open. But, but what was said about Christians in other global uh, pandemics, particularly in the early first few centuries uh, in, in Rome and other spaces where people were dying, you know, and the church was said to, instead of fleeing like everybody else, they were concerned about those who were being left behind and didn't have anyone to take care of them, those who were sick from, from, from the plague. And so the, the church, in a demonstration of their, 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 their call towards neighborly love, moved to go and care for those people so that those people didn't die alone. And at the risk of their own lives. In fact, many of them died because of this. They went to go look after the poor. In fact, it is said that you are most likely to survive or die with dignity if you knew a Christian during a plague. That is what exploded Christianity during that time. 
that is so significant that is really yeah that that raises so many questions and pains for me actually uh, yeah mm-hmm. so so what i mean is it's very strange that we even asking this question it's it's a strange question in the history of the church to say should we preach the gospel or should we do social justice and it, it it's 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 the and understand that there has been uh, a move to identify you know to say what is the what is the whole gospel uh, what is the imperative you know we're about saving souls and you know then on the other side it's about you know um a political posture and i use i use emmanuel katongole as well to to um to reference this because he talks about the four postures of the church with regards to social engagement and he looks at you know um post a uh, pre pre rwandan genocide for instance and he talks about the pious posture which is concerned about you know the soul change comes through the individual changes social change comes and follows from individual change in women and and men for instance then there's a political one that was to work with structures and institutions and then uh ultimately you know he he talks about the prophetic church which encompasses all of those there's no this false sense of dichotomy but it it when it changes things it changes things the way god intended and god has a holistic view of of the world that god, it's not that god has a wonderful plan for my life but that god has a wonderful plan for the world and so it's it's a gospel that understands and, and interrogates this and wants to communicate this in a full in a full way, and so people defend the wrong things. Uh, they're always concerned about uh, what's the wrong preaching of of the gospel to the point that they do injustice and we end up preaching theologies that would even rebuke Jesus. I think I think about how Jesus acted towards the the restoration and the ministry of the the entire human being and but we've constructed theologies that today if Jesus was with us seeing him do what he does we would say he's lost focus on the main thing for instance so yeah that's just my my thoughts on on where we where we go wrong but there's no dichot there's no obvious dichotomy in the scriptures in the life of Jesus in the early church uh life in the, in in I mean new testament church certainly not also in our own on histories of very recent Msingi is a Swahili word meaning foundation. Our name and mandate comes from Psalms 89.14. We host engaging conversations on faith, social justice and advocacy across all our social media platforms. We also offer training and consultancy services to help you navigate the world of social justice and faith. To engage with us, visit our website www.msingitrust.org Follow us on all our social media handles at Msingi Trust or email us on info at msingitrust.org. Yeah, and oh, man, I think as for all of us, we all know that we need to, to read Emmanuel Katongole. He's, uh, <laughs> he's a theologian. I have his book here and I've not read it. Uh, and I want to start on it after you've spoken so much about him. And also our teacher, uh, Mr. Stefan, always quotes, yes. uh, quotes him. <laughs> but yeah. uh, when you Have see you read, this, you, you, I, you, must, you must read his recent one on reconciling all things. 
And that's it's the one a, it, I have. That's the one I have. Oh, okay. Excellent. I thought you the popular one is a sacrifice of Africa, which is great. But I'm I'm no, currently have, enjoying this reconciling all things. Yeah. Can I say when I bought this reconciling thing, and I wanted to say this, and I'm so happy that you stated this. I I bought this book when I was at the Justice Conference, and you yeah. you you spoke during the Justice Conference, and I I remember you were about to go and speak, and I asked you a question, and I asked you because I was really terrified because this was my first time to speak at such a forum and i remember this is really not connected to this conversation but kind of <laughs> is <laughs> but i remember asking you i don't know if you remember this i remember asking you do you ever get scared when um speaking in front of all these people and i remember you saying that you always are nervous and I really like that made me so that gave me peace because I'm like if my classic and gets scared who speaks in front of all these audiences who am I who am I so thank you for that encouragement man no you're welcome and, and you you, you smashed it I mean you yeah you really you did so well uh, you're such a good communicator and you did really well in that context uh, well done Thank you. So uh, now back to, <laughs> to our conversation, because what you were saying was making me wonder about the the state church. Yeah. And because sometimes there's uh, there's the feeling that the reason why we are of Christian nations of uh, of church and state being together and. Yeah calling countries a Christian nation, which feels like the ultimate goal of, of the prophetic. And, uh, and also now we see even elections in Kenya, as well as in the recent concluded, we are not sure if it's concluded election in, in the United States of America, of how prophecy, as you uh, as you uh, call it, but not as you de- defined it, is used to to rubber stamp political leadership. Is there something as a Christian nation? Is there something? What what's your take on state and the church prophecy towards who will be our leader? What's the role of the prophetic church towards the state? Yeah, good question. Um, with the situation that's happening in different parts of the world, I think as demonstrated best in the US, you, you do have certain things that should give us pause and worry, although not a surprise. Um, historically, Christians have been interested in having institutional power because the argument has been that when we are in power in in business in education we, we can we can advance god's kingdom at least from a policy level we can win business if we make lots of money we can give towards god's mission uh and evangelism and generosity if we are in political power we can usher in policies uh you know that are aligned to biblical values for instance so christians 
have wanted uh, to be involved and have institutional power. But what you have in most cases, in fact, historically, this has not worked out in Duta. Historically, whenever we've been in, when we had institutional power, we've been very oppressive. <laughs> uh, I'm speaking from South Africa, where a large part of the church gave a backing to one of the most devastating, you know, state-led policies uh, of apartheid here in South Africa because we had institutional power. And, you know, we can go back in history and name many, many different times when we've done this. The issue here is when you're disconnected from what the real gospel is and you want to advance biblical values and biblical uh, ethics uh, at a policy level. You cannot preach Christ without Christ. In, in other words, you can't divorce the ethics and the values of Christ from the person of Christ himself. And I think some of these institutions try to do this. Uh, so if you look at some of the nations uh, in, in the U.S., uh, it's very disturbing that you, 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 you have people who attach the person of Christ to, and, and, and the work of Christ to a character who actually verbally, publicly, uh, on a very, very popular platform, denounce the teaching of Christ. That this would be very obvious <laughs> this would be very obvious, but but what would happen is that because of the various and I look, I want to get into the theology, the different, uh, uh, you know, colorful theologies about, you know, uh, the end times and uh, you know the antichrist and so forth. But we've got to be at the basic level able to recognize antichrist values, antichrist uh, character, antichrist policies. We've got to be able to recognize these things it doesn't need you don't even need to be having a colorful theology of prophecy to say listen this spirit here that denies you know the teachings of christ this is wrong i think that it's a very strange version of christianity that would not be biblically recognizable by the early church again and historically uh the church when they see the way that we are um we've aligned uh, the person of Christ and turned him into a, pol a political supporter of political leaders. Uh, this is not true Christianity. And I don't think that Jesus would, would sign up for something like that. Um, let me leave it there. Maybe you have a question. <laughs> I oh. have because you see, it's, there is the evangelical church in Kenya, the evangelical church in Nigeria and many um, many evangelical spaces and even in the states really affirmed the presidency and the candidature of uh, Donald Trump. And he said, they said that it is the Christian vote. It is the Christian way to do. And the, and the two reasons that uh, they did that was on the basis of abortion and uh, gay marriage. And um, of course, that's a whole other podcast about it. But I, I wonder why it's, okay, not, not I wonder, but it's so easy to speak about abortion and it's easy to talk about gay marriage, but it's the 
other things around it are not as evil. The other policies around the rule of this presidency, the actually even the military, even the, the military industrial complex that's all over the world now, that's not seen as as sin, but it's seen as the as defending your country. And it's not seen as murder. And yet you find yeah. it's not seen as murder. Armies are sent to ravage countries, but we can celebrate the army in our churches. Yeah. You know? Yet we are celebrating, and I I Americans and a lot of people don't understand it when we say it that we are celebrating when you're celebrating your veterans and you're celebrating people who killed other people in other countries and that is controversial and i know people who will say my uncle did not do that he was protecting our country but the question is you came to these spaces. You know, it's all those things about connecting the state to Christianity and protection yeah. and capitalism and white supremacy and ex, uh, manifest destiny, exceptionalism, that yeah. at the end of it all is centered on the white, the white uh, identity conquering uh, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying because I no, look yeah. the the West the West was founded on colonialism and imperialism and 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 so it's <laughs> I hope you could hear that my background yeah, yeah. <laughs> birds going home. Yeah, I thought we were amening my point. Oh yes, that's true. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 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 I spoke already about this human propensity to exercise power over others that sometimes masquerades or looks for religious legitimacy. And I think that's what sometimes Christianity has been uh, to justify further. We know that it was, you know, theology sometimes that justified slavery and justified colonialism and empire and so forth. And so uh coming back to the the, the 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 first thing that you said about the policies, there is a priority of policies, like you said, which you know conservative Christians, again, a very a very a very sad term to use because conservative and liberal were meant to be terms I think that made a political distinction as opposed to a type of Christian. But let's say conservatives are concerned about certain policies. And you mentioned the two big ones, and you can add others as well, like being a prayer in schools. Uh, and by the way, if you go back, it used to be also Young Earth. Uh, it's just that that one has sort of fallen off. As somebody who's in the apologetic space, I would get involved with in a conversation with people who, you know, Young Earth was right alongside there. It was, you know, abortion. It was... Um, gay rights uh, or same-sex marriage, let me put it that way, and then also Young Earth. Uh, there was a particular uh, emphasis on those. And of course, whether you agree or disagree about you know, how those read and, and the interpretation, and th there was no doubt that there were many other issues that were global issues that were being ignored 
in that priority. In other words, Christians in certain parts of the world were, could easily look at those issues and ignore the others around the world, which would easily fall within the same issues. So if you're pro-life, then you're not only pro-life as people have stressed for the unborn baby, but you should be also pro-life for those who are dying in other countries, those whom your military you know, is, is, is busy uh, killing. You should be pro-life. The same principle that makes you pro-life, which is a sacredness of life, towards the unborn is the same principle that should make you pro-life uh, mm-hmm. towards towards those who are far off that it cannot be that only those who are in your land matters um, but when 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 the story changes because it's seen from God's perspective so there is there there's a, there's a very myopic uh, application and this is a thing that when Jesus often came you know he didn't he and, and there was a sense of freedom that he brought to 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 the thing this the standard was raised a higher for you've heard it said before now i say it. you compare these two standards you realize gosh he's making it higher so i think what jesus would say to our friends with a myopic focus on certain policies would be explore me and you'd see something a bit much 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 higher much more important around the world and that's where justice comes in it's not a it's not about competing policies it's about understanding god's vision for the world and seeing that we have we are falling short seriously as human beings and however we are being invited to participate in that to to seeing that that vision become a reality at least in part for now Mm. and so now how then do we stop because i found remember when i told you that kenya nigeria as far yeah. as I know, have um, have really there were there was a whole Trump uh, movement, and it's because of the kind of of apologetics that we have here in Kenya and Africa. How do we how do we change or oh, as the apologetics guy in Africa? <laughs> How, what are you, what would you say is the approach that should be made to first Africanize apologetics that it speaks to African uh, intricacies and Africa's problems and doesn't carry the, the, the Western, the American, uh, biases that uh, it definitely carries because i i promise you um i've been into one or two apologetic spaces here and it's all theology that is from one very uh male white lens so one is apologetics a male white space and two (laughs) (laughs) how (laughs) How do you make it? How do is there a need to contextualize apologetics? Because it's yeah, and what is the process? What is an apologetics for Africa? How does an apologetics for Africa look like? In um in Hebrews one, verse one, we read that long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke 
to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The Hebrew uh, speaker there, the Hebrew pastor, he, he talks to his people and he says, look, uh, he's preparing to make a case for Jesus being better than any communication that they've received. And he says, look, uh, if you look into our history, uh, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, he communicated himself to, to, to our fathers by the prophets. But then you look into that and you realize this is actually something that you can actually take and understand it in a more global setting. It's not just applicable for the, for the Hebrews. That God is a missionary. God is being communicating himself. Um, he's been communicating himself to different cultures. And throughout the world, throughout history, you can see God's footprints. It shouldn't surprise us because he's a missionary God. And the only thing, though, is that that communication, the, the, the Hebrew pastor argues, has been in anticipation to the final and clear revelation, which is in Jesus Christ. It was staggered communication. It was often misunderstood. It was often resisted and so forth. But here's a clear re revelation of what God has been saying throughout here. It's in Christ Jesus. So he's pointing us all to, to, to the person of Christ. Now, I think that the work that every culture was meant to do was meant to say, what is Christ saying to us in our context and do that work of understanding and reading him within context. But what's happened because of the development of the world and the development of theology in particularly the West, what's happened is that the rest of us, or a lot of us have basically been recipients of this kind of question being answered from the West. That's why certain questions never really fully landed here in terms of applying practical theology to some of our own situations. That's why there were gaps. That's why there are Africans who speak like they are in the West. And you think, gosh, have you not been to Africa? And yet they live here as well. That's because it's a plug and play of what's been articulated already. Uh, and so what we're just doing is we're just taking it and importing it. And I, that's why I admire uh, people who do work in, in, say, the Middle East and in other uh, parts in, in the Global South uh, work in terms of what are theologians, people who've been thinking about and wrestling through these issues, been saying in answering who is Christ here, what has he been saying, and what does this redemptive work look like to redeem the world, to create a new humanity? What are some of the ways in which that work takes place here? And I think that when you see churches that are wholeheartedly, you know, endorse, obviously people can endorse who they want, they can support who they want. Um, however, it's sad when they make God complicit in, 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 in their participation of uh, something that is framed so foreign to, to who we are, uh, that some people would really support uh, people in the West, uh, I mean, you already know, look at the, 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 the podcast list that people listen to in, our, in, in many of our churches. Look at the heroes. If you ask people who are the theologians, who are the top teachers on this subject, you know, you'll hear people say names uh, of preachers who are in the West. Uh, so much so now with all the, you know, the digital revolution, right, that makes it easy for us to connect 
to services and download podcasts easily. So people still look to the West as, as an aspiration, as a center of the world. So what needs to happen is there needs to be a decentering of the West, I think, from, from, from the world. There needs to be a, a, a creation of a plurality of centers uh, that people begin to appreciate and also appreciate that Christ came to express himself in all of these centers too. And it's in discovering what that expression look, looks like that we're actually going to be contributing to the world. Look, the world of the West that we idolize is falling apart values-wise. Uh, being founded, many of the nations being founded on Christian principles have severed their Christian roots. And so, and so when, when, we, when, we, when we look that way, we're actually, it's actually a paradox. <laughs> it's actually a paradox because we're looking at something that's not working, something that is falling apart, something that's broken, but we still have these aspirations uh, which don't make, make sense. Oh, wow. So much. I can, there's so much to unpack there, but I, I feel like we'll get you for part two of this conversation. <laughs> but I know there's, uh, there's one, uh, we still have to tackle the problematic scriptures that we have, and Judges 19 is one of them, and there are many others. Uh, but I'd like also, as we are coming to close uh, of this conversation, for you to share with me like a, a verse or a chapter, a book that helps you in the work that you do, that connects uh, your work that you do. So, Ooh, that's a big responsibility. Um, let me see. I have to, I have to pick one. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do, um, I'm trying to pick between, between James, it's okay. You can pick say again. Two. You you can pick two. It's fine. I can pick two. Yes. <laughs> or okay. more. So, so so the first one is is in James. So when I think about justice, I think there are different facets to it, right? I see, especially as we are invited to participate with God in fixing His His world. I see on a social side of it. I see. Uh, generosity um again all things that god done, has done so you know corinthians paul argues that just as god has been generous to us we should also be generous uh james i mean john one john also uh, says the same thing and so there's an element of generosity there's element of equality uh as well uh treating everyone regardless of where they are with equal worth and value and dignity for instance James, James 2, uh, which is a recent fascination, a re-fascination, says, do not hold, do not show partiality as you hold to the faith in Jesus Christ. And this idea of showing partiality or favoritism or uh, treating people differently with regards to their outward appearances because they look different is, is called a sin of partiality. And and James uh, says this is this is wrong because one this is this is against the character of God. If if anything, you know the way that God treats people is the opposite. God has chosen the poor uh, to be rich in faith. You humiliate them, 
Um, and, and in fact, when we say God has no favorites, you know, it's actually not true because God does have a bias in scripture. It's the poor, the oppressed, the widow, and the orphan. That theme comes up over and yeah. over again. And he does also have the immigrant, the refugee as well. That's God. That's right. Yeah. So God does. God does mm-hmm. have have a bias in scripture and it's and it's it's expressed. Uh, but he also says something interesting. He says, uh, look, this is you have failed in doing so, you have failed to show neighborly love. And that that invokes my second scripture uh which is which is in luke uh and you know the the young ruler asking jesus you know um the question the young expert in the law asked jesus the question you know how can i inherit eternal life and that's a very interesting conversation that takes place but that response that, that Jesus gives firstly to say, what does the law say? And he says, well, love the Lord with everything, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, well, go and do the same and you'll be in, you'll fine. And then the lawyer feels a pressure to go, oh, this is a standard I cannot meet. And therefore I need to somehow find a justification. Now he thinks that loving God with everything is easy. So therefore he's going to challenge loving your neighbor as, as oneself. And so he asked Jesus, who, who's my neighbor? Who qualifies? And, and then the question is, is designed to say basically that Jesus, it's very difficult to know. Therefore, I should be off the hook. It's really difficult to define this, this thing. Therefore, I should be, oh, I should define it in a small way that it's easy for me to really uh, get off the hook and get into, into heaven. But Jesus tells that story, the famous story, the Good Samaritan, and leads to the question. This question has been the question that defines what I do, even in my apologetics. Um, as well, which is Jesus changes the question from, you know, who is, who is my neighbor? Jesus asked, out of these people, who became a neighbor? From who is my neighbor to the subject changes. In the first one, who qualifies to receive help from me? Yeah. Who to, for, for me to act in a particular way, who qualifies? The second one is how do I qualify? Jesus puts a standard on me to qualify myself as a neighbor, as he qualified. This is Christology. It's a Christological reading because he qualified himself as a neighbor when he came to die. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, so he qualified himself. So he asked the same question. Who, how do I qualify myself as Mashazi, as a neighbor? So when somebody's asking a question, when somebody's hurting, when somebody is pointing to there's a wrongness in this world, uh, mm-hmm. when somebody shows me statistics about gender-based violence you know and says look i'm hurting uh, and the face of that looks like men i ask myself god in your broken world how can i be a neighbor as a man how can i be a neighbor as a south african as my fellow south africans we you know uh, continue to to do to 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 um to xenophobic violence commit xenophobic mm-hmm. violence how can i be a neighbor and I continue to ask this question. It has made my apologetic uh, journey quite interesting uh, and very different, I guess, to, to its original trajectory. What? Well, I, uh, I, I listened to your podcast episode where you talked about gender-based violence with Lusanda. And I really, if you're, we'll put the details in some, somewhere. Uh, it's, it's called Circle Around. It's on YouTube, right? Did circle around? It is called circle around, yeah. Yeah, it's circle <laughs> around on YouTube. 
And I really, really was touched by that conversation about gender-based violence. So if you're listening, please go to YouTube and look for Circle Around. And then the other thing, uh, I've also been looking at the who is my neighbor question and really on those two very important verses that you've lifted up. And for, for me, the, the conclusion that I came to was go be that which you hate the most because they hated Samaritans. Yeah. Go be the one who, who, if it was them, you would never have done this for them. Go be, go be that enemy and yeah. do, and imagine being told, go be like the thing you hate the most. And God adding virtue to something, to someone in whom your belief system, your political system, your economic system has always put vice on. I, th- I really think that that scripture really is, I feel like we underplayed the strength of that scripture because if we really took it to heart, we would, we would be a different people. Well, I agree. I think that um, sometimes also we, 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 we remember that when, in fact, a lot of people that I ask, who are you in the story? They always read the story and think they are the good Samaritan. Um, or they're, they're, they're the, the one who's been robbed. But nobody looks at the scripture and says, I'm actually the one who is meant to do right and have walked past, you know, the, 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 the robbed. And in fact, the failure of the establishment to do what I'm supposed to do, what's expected, the standard of Jesus. Nobody looks at the scripture and think, wow, I think there are times where I've been a robber. Yeah. And we can stretch that analogy further and say, nobody looks at that scripture or very few people look at that scripture and go, gosh, I am the one who is the innkeeper who's benefiting from, from, the, from the product of injustice. <laughs> and so, and so, and so, yeah. so, so we tend to think in terms of, I think that the easiest thing here to say, I'm either the good Samaritan or I'm this thing, but I think Jesus lives it open-ended. That story ne- never resolves. And yeah. it's very important because the question, I think the third question would be, what does it mean then to be a neighbor if you are the priest, if you are the, 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 the one, the robber? You know, Zacchaeus showed us what it's like to be a neighbor when you've been the robber. You know, he comes back after a conversation with Jesus and he says, Jesus, mm-hmm. I realize I've been wrong. I've robbed and where I have, this is what I'm going to do. He's, he's, mm-hmm. he's a neighbor. You know, and the questions remain He's for the reparation. <laughs> reparation. Yes, reparation. Absolutely. That's right. That's what it means. Yes. So, so it's a, it's yeah. a very rich scripture. And then, and then again, it says for the rest of us who are beneficiaries of injustice or who've benefited from some form of injustice, what, what, does, what does it mean for us to be, to be a neighbor? Um, yeah. in, in that. So I think it's, 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 a, it's a really good scripture to keep asking in various communities, but we shouldn't do right. We shouldn't just uh, limit it to, you know, the, the good Samaritan and, uh, and the one who's been robbed. There's much more. And if, I, if I'm honest, I think there are many ways in which 
uh, I have been those different characters in my life. But yeah. there's always this invitation to say, okay, if you find yourself in any of those situations, will you now be a neighbor? Oh, man, we'll go back and read. <laughs> and read the Good Samaritan <laughs> story because of the depth in this. And the other thing as we, as we go to judges is that the priests did what was um, uh, culturally and uh, according to his office and yes, ceremonially yes. right. Yeah. And that is for me a problem because it's not a problem, but it's problematic because it's, it shows that sometimes you need to break the law to do justice, to serve God's people. And I know a lot of people will be like, no, I know, <laughs> I know a lot of people who, who will be like, yeah, no, let's not do it. But Jesus asks us the difficult question and, and we see the person who's maybe even going as Martin Luther talks about, maybe he was going, the two guys were going to have a meeting on why the road was so unsafe, you know. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you're doing the right thing, but not actually solving the problem. So I think my my takeaway from, from that point that you've just made is a it's a very important point that sometimes we can think that we are doing the right thing, serving God, while at the same time, we are actually failing to do the very basic thing that he's asked us to do. We are perpetuating injustice. Correct. We are serving God, yeah. Correct. So sometimes our religious language rituals can masquerade as righteousness. Mm. But God has already asked and told us what righteousness is. Right standing with him and then receiving the ministry of reconciliation to re reconcile all things. Mm. Right? To, 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 to preach that shalom, that holistic view of shalom as God intended. This is, this is it. This is what we're invited to. But sometimes our services can be more important. Our buildings can be more important. Our programs can be more important, such that when we tick all of those boxes, we can often look at the very work of God and scoff at mm. it. Yeah. It's a warning for us to, today. Yeah. Certain. Man, I think also the conversation where we, uh, there's a, a text where we're told that as teachers, we will be judged harshly, you know, because we Correct. knew the things that we failed to, to, to live them. So I think I'm looking at the time, I'm looking at how much we have, and I'm looking <laughs> at the conversation we still need to have. And I really think we need to come back and have a different conversation on difficult scriptures. And we'll have Judges 19, we have Proverbs 31, we'll have um, conversations around slaves, we'll have conversations on Joshua and what he did. Yeah. I think for a good understanding of what, um, 
the scriptures are about, we need to have these conversations and not shy away from them. So we'll not have the Judges 19 conversation today. We'll have it at another, uh, during another recording, which, which we'll, we'll share when we can do that. Yeah, is that cool? I'm happy next week. Let's do it. Same time. Let's do it. Uh, or earlier. I think I'd be, I, I want to commit on the podcast so that uh, it's there. <laughs> it's but, recorded. Uh, but yeah, please. Uh, I think those are very important questions uh, because they often lead people to ask the question, can I trust this Bible uh, where, you know, God is apparently uh, ordering genocide or can I trust this Bible that where God's salvific plan seemingly is uh, working together with a certain patriarchy that's devastating to the lives of women. Can I trust this Bible where you've got ceremonial laws that exclude disabled people from God's, you know, temple and worship space, for instance? What kind of a God, uh, you know, who seems immoral and yet is a standard of righteousness and goodness uh, are you inviting me to follow? And the one who's seen their sanctions are slavery or who's silent about slavery when it matters or actually regulates it in the old test I'd, I'd be very happy to visit that conversation because i think it's a really it's a conversation that people shy away from but it's a it's a it's a really important one like i said where god has been framed unjustly those are the conversations we need to we need to actually find ourselves and locate ourselves in yeah and maybe from the other perspective when where God frames uh, himself in a way that to us looks very unjust. Because if I'm a Canaanite who's being chased away from my home, because, and also we'll have the Israeli-Palestine conversation as well, because yes, that's yes. a real conversation that's happening now. Oh, that one maybe I might avoid. Um, <laughs> I'm happy to talk about the Bible, you know. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yes. And actually, one of the reasons that many people voted for Trump is because he made uh, Jerusalem the capital city of Israel. Sure. <laughs> so thank you so much, Matate. We'll be back for sure. And thank you for giving us your time and for amazing conversations and your generosity in terms of your knowledge, your time, and your passion for God's word and for God's people. So Circle Around is uh, is the podcast that it's on YouTube. It's on YouTube? That's correct, yeah. So if you say say Circle Around and you say Lusanda Mashua or Masati, it should, even on Google, it should come up, some of the episodes. It's also on Apple uh, and on Spotify as well, iTunes and Spotify. If you've been inspired, challenged, and or enjoyed this conversation, and would like to contribute to this and catch up with more of such, remember to follow us on social media at Msingi Trust, share this podcast with your friends and family, and also consider making a donation to support the production of this podcast. Donations can be made through PayPal, msingikenya at gmail.com, Patreon at msingikenya, or through M-Pesa, plus 254-792-176-030. Kwaherini and thank you for joining us.